Welcome to another episode of A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. Today, you and I will be expertly introduced into the linguistic life of Bulgaria and the Balkans. Our guide is Leonid Motz, who's here to talk through the many historical ingredients that have gone into making modern-day Bulgarian. For this episode of A Language I Love Is, I have the privilege and the pleasure to be joined from Vienna by Leonid Motz. Leonid is a linguist there in Vienna, and he is currently in the very, very final stages of his BA in linguistics, and very soon to begin the great adventure of a master's continuing his studies. He's also a teacher in Vienna. So, Leonid, how are you? How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. Now, let's get the big question out of the way. Um, Leonid, what is a language that you love and want to talk about today? A language I love is Bulgarian and also known natively as uh, Bulgarski Ezik. Let's begin with, I say an easy question, uh, an obvious question. Where in the world can we find speakers of Bulgarian? Obviously, Bulgarian is the national language of Bulgaria. It has some six and a half million speakers there. Um, but due to immigration, we have quite the big diaspora across Central Europe. So in Austria alone, there are some 36,000 speakers of Bulgarian, which is quite a big number compared to the population of Austria. But migration in general is quite interesting for the diffusion of the Bulgarian language because there is a community of Bulgarian speakers in Banat, which is this region between Serbia and Romania that was historically part of the Habsburg Empire. And these communities speak Banat Bulgarian and got there by a historical accident. I mean, Bulgaria, as most parts of the Balkan Peninsula, was under Ottoman rule for a very long time. And then suddenly the Habsburg Empire besieges Belgrade in 1688. And out of enthusiasm, suddenly the northeastern village of Ciprovci, which was this Catholic enclave in otherwise Orthodox territory, decides that it's time to rebel against Ottoman rule. And that unfortunately didn't turn out quite well, um, and uh, the village was completely destroyed. And so that's the reason people migrated to Catholic-friendly Austro-Hungarian Banat. And there are still some 12,000 speakers of Banat Bulgarian left today. And there are some speakers of Bulgarian in Bessarabia, which is this region in southern Ukraine and Moldova. And we have several dozens of thousands of people of Bulgarian descent who still speak the language there today. Banat, Bessarabia, Bulgaria, and across Europe in the Bulgarian diaspora. Three Bs, I see. Okay, so that, that's a great start in terms of the geography of this language. And it's fascinating that that's the second time that the Banat region has been mentioned on this podcast. I think it deserves its own episode. It's so linguistically rich. Um, but let's talk about the name Bulgaria. And I think this is a way into the history of this language, because the name Bulgarian, it's a name for the language that comes from another language family. Could you unpack why we call Bulgarians Bulgarians? Okay, so basically, this is um, something that's very interesting because Bulgarian is an Indo-European language. So it is distantly related to English, French, Pashto, Latin, and all of these languages. And um, it is a Slavic language. If you look at a Bulgarian text and know the Cyrillic script, you can immediately tell that this is a language that must be related to all of the other languages of the Slavic branch. So Serbian, Croatian, Russian, Ukrainian, and so on. But the name of the language is neither Slavic nor Indo-European. And to understand this, I guess we have to dive into the history of medieval Bulgaria, um, the first Bulgarian empire, because the Bulgarians are a product of a very specific histor uh, historical situation. 
there is this ancestral tribe called the Proto-Bulgarians, or sometimes also the Bulgars. And actually, we don't know much about them. Probably they were speakers of some kind of Turkic variety. And the best guess here would be that this Turkic variety uh, is in some way related to modern-day Chuvash, so quite different from all of the other Turkic languages. And this population, the Proto-Bulgarians, uh, it's not very clear if this was like a real people or just sort of tribes, they migrated westwards towards the region south of the Danube that was known to the Romans as Mesia, Mesia uh, Inferior, basically uh, where today's Bulgaria is. And this tribe encountered Slavic tribes and assimilated uh, into them. And this assimilation process was going on for quite a long time. And uh, the proto-Bulgarians assimilated into the Slavs up to a point where there was nothing left of them besides some words we think they might be loans from proto-Bulgarian, mainly because we haven't come up with a better etymology, actually. And the name Bulgarians, uh, Bulgaria, which is certainly not of Slavic origin, but probably it means to mix or something in a Turkic language. That is interesting. So despite the enormous importance of the Bulgars within the history, within the social history of the people, they've actually left a pretty light influence on the language today. Yes, that is correct. But if we look at the medieval history, um, we kind of understand how this uh, came to be. Because the proto-Bulgarians ruled and the Slavs worked the land. Sometimes it happens when you have this disproportionate linguistic situation, the actually inferior language, the socially inferior language, establishes itself as the dominant one, and so Slavic becomes the lingua franca in this first uh, Bulgarian empire. And the early rulers of this empire had names such as Asparuch, Krum, or Omurtag, and uh, their title was Khan, so you see that this is very much non-Slavic. But then in the middle of the ninth century, we have an interesting situation because we have a conflict between the Khan and the nobleman and a conflict between parts of the population who sort of already adopted the new religion uh, in town, and the new religion in town was Christianity, and parts of the population who still followed the traditional proto-Bulgarian or Slavic religion. And finally, a conflict between the now numerically dominant Slavs and the remaining proto-Bulgarians. It reminds me of, I don't know if it's a good comparison, but it reminds me of, say, the Franks, for example. The Franks established this ginormous empire in Western Europe. Part of this empire became France, but the linguistic legacy, well, they gave a lot of words, they gave the name of the language, but ultimately these ruling Germanic-speaking people were linguistically assimilated. As far as I know my history of early medieval Bulgaria, do we get the name Boris from Bulgar? I think, yes, Boris is very is very uh, important to this whole thing, and it is also important to the answer to the question that is opened by these three conflicts I mentioned before. Because there is this Khan Boris um, in the ninth century, and this Khan proposes a very simple solution to all of these problems. And the solution is basically, I mean, let's become all Christians and forget about this proto-Bulgarian versus Slav thing that was going on. And he got baptized in uh, 864, and after some consideration on which flavor of Christianity he should adopt, he introduced the version of Christianity into the Bulgarian Empire that was practiced um, in the neighboring Byzantine Empire. And so many things change at once. And the most important thing is that conveniently there is this literary language that was invented some years earlier, 
by two guys from Thessaloniki. And these two guys were named Cyril and Method. And they probably weren't even ethnical Slavs, even though they came up with this thing that we call Church Slavonic. And these two guys codified the first literally Slavic variety on the dialectal basis of Thessaloniki, which is very much in our um, East-South Slavic area and the area we're looking into. And these two guys were sent to introduce Christianity to Moravia, which is in today Czechia, Slovakia, it's that direction. But this mission failed for many reasons. And so their students had to flee elsewhere. And some of them, namely Kliman Naum and Angilari, brought Church Slavonic back to the south, so to Bulgaria. And this is very good for our Khan Boris, because he can use Church Slavonic as an official language in the empire. Um, and this language is adopted by all, by the Slavs and the former proto-Bulgarians, and lots of monasteries are founded and so on. And Christianity is the dominant thing now, and all the former problems, will, all of these divisions move to the background. And so it comes that all church Slavonic texts of this period we call Old Church Slavonic, with a notable exception of one single text that is probably to be placed somewhere near Lake Balaton. But all of the other Old Church Slavonic texts are distinctly Old Bulgarian in their features. So the history of the Bulgarian language is extremely interconnected, intertwined with the history of Christianity, because Christianity gives this fuel to create this literary language. And consequently, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way in which Bulgarian or maybe South Slavic words get spread far away. It's through this literary language, this language of Christianity, that Slavs pick up words of South Slavic, specifically, origin. Is, is that right? So I'm thinking, for example, that Bulgarian had a very early influence on, say, Russian. Yes. So there is two periods of big influence of South Slavic, of Church Slavonic, that is to be put into, into a Bulgarian direction, so mostly Old Bulgarian. The first Old Bulgarian South Slavic influence onto Russian is to be placed into the 10th century, uh, so it's actually not on Russian, it's more on Old East Slavic, so the language of Kiev Rus. And the second influence is in the 15th century. So we see two moments in which very Bulgarian-looking words get into East Slavic, and these are words that are a product of regular sound changes that happened in the southern part of the Slavic-speaking word and not in the eastern part. That is why we have uh, double forms, such as grat, which is the southern Slavic form, which comes from Bulgarian or Old Church Slavonic into Eastern Slavic, and all these names like former Leningrad or Volgograd and so on. And then we have the actual Russian form, gorat. Which I, I suppose is then Novgorod. The city of Novgorod is then preserving the original, the older East Slavic way of doing things. I mean, I could easily talk about the history of Bulgarian and its influence. This is deeply fascinating to me. But let's concentrate back in on Bulgarian, specifically the language that people, ordinary people, are speaking within this region across the medieval, early modern period. Are there distinct uh, periods to the history of Bulgarian? Do we have old, middle, modern, like we do in other languages like, uh, well, English, for example? Yes, we have that. We have a usual periodization of Bulgarian into three big historical moments that mostly coincide with different socio-political situations. So we have Old Bulgarian, which is to be placed in the 9th, 10th and 11th century. 
Old Bulgarian meaning the old Bulgarian corpus of Church Slavonic. Then subsequently we have this period called Middle Bulgarian from the 12th to the 15th century, um, which is a literary norm that evolves from earlier Old Bulgarian, but we already see some innovations happening, and these are innovations that are shared with other um, Balkan languages. And uh, this is also the official language of the Second Bulgarian Empire. And the Second Bulgarian Empire then is ended by the arrival of the Ottomans to the Balkan Peninsula. And during the Ottoman times, Church Slavonic was confined to the monasteries, and the popular language was a vernacular, a Slavic vernacular. On the basis of this Slavic vernacular, a modern Bulgarian emerges in the 16th and 17th century, and is then standardized in the 18th and 19th century. And it is standardized on an Eastern Bulgarian variety. And this is interesting because in historical linguistics, we see these texts that start to appear in the 16th century that are called Damaskini, Damaskins in English. And these are liturgical texts, church teachings, but they're written for the people in their language. So not in this archaic version of Church Slavonic, but rather in the vernacular language. And the first Damaskins are actually translations of Damaskino Studitis Thesauros from 1558, which is this Greek uh, church teacher. But then later we find also distinctively Slavic texts. And here we can see how Bulgarian sort of makes the transition from synthetical to analytical morphology. So this means that first we have this highly fusional language, Old Bulgarian, Old Church Slavonic works very much like Latin or ancient Greek with all these endings. And modern Bulgarian, starting with the Damaskins, has this morphology that's more similar to modern English. So less cases, more markings using prepositions, and also the grammaticalized post-positive article. Uh, so the Bulgarian version of the English word the, basically, gets into the Bulgarian language, and all this cool stuff appears that makes modern Bulgarian what it is today. And then in the 18th and 19th century, starting also a little bit earlier with the Bulgarian national revival, we see this modern Bulgarian standard language that emerges, and it is then at the end of the 19th century, the language of the newly independent nation-state of Bulgaria. Standards, in my experience, normally hide a lot of variation. So I'm presuming that Bulgarian, like any language in the world, has dialects. I mean, Bulgaria is a pretty big country. I'm presuming that there are Eastern Bulgarian dialects and Western dialects. And I have to mention the M word. Where does Macedonian fit into all of this? Because it's something that I would love to dig into. Isn't Macedonian this language that has this separate name, isn't it a bit of a problem to identifying Bulgarian as a language? Okay, so basically Macedonia first is this geographical region next to the Aegean Sea and the Lake Ohrid and also parts of today's Western Bulgaria, so Northern Greece, today's Republic of North Macedonia and Western Bulgaria. And the question on differences between a Macedonian and a Bulgarian standard language is a highly politicized topic, as is everything connected to the Republic of North Macedonia, unfortunately. And there has been this name dispute with Greece, but also the language dispute with Bulgaria. So the Bulgarians historically claim 
the Macedonian linguistic and spiritual culture as part of the two former Bulgarian empires. But the thing now is that Bulgaria became independent um, in the second half of the 19th century without the territory that is today North Macedonia. So this territory stayed with the Ottoman Empire for a little bit longer and later became Yugoslav territory. And the language there was standardized in 1944, mainly by a guy named Blaze Koneski, with some earlier attempts that are usually also claimed by the Bulgarians as part of their political history. So there is this very complicated situation. But, you know, again, about dialectal variation, East-South Slavic is a big dialectal continuum. So there is all these dialects that sort of, if they're placed next to each other, are very much mutually intelligible. And in linguistics, there is no real measurement for what a language is and how it's different from, say, I don't know, a dialect. And these differences are mostly political. So the best thing we can do is ask the speakers whether they would call their variety a language or a dialect. And if we ask the speakers of Macedonian today, they would absolutely say that this is a language and it has two million speakers in the Republic of North Macedonia, where it's co-official with Albanian and has a diaspora in Australia and whatnot. And there are obviously notable differences between the standard Bulgarian and the standard Macedonian languages, even though they're based on two closely related East-South Slavic dialects. So these differences are mostly rooted in the fact that standard Bulgarian was formed using the structure of an East Bulgarian dialect, and standard Macedonian was standardized on a Western Macedonian dialect basis. So standard Macedonian has a fixed stress on the third syllable from the end of the word, and Bulgarian has free stress. Standard Macedonian has a threefold system of postpositive articles with deictic properties. So if I say in Macedonian, rakata, it means the hand. If I say rakana, it means that hand. And if I say rakava, it means this hand. And standard Bulgarian only has one postpositive article, rakata. It's just the hand. We have differences in orthography between Macedonian and Bulgarian. And Macedonian has a very peculiar syntax with mandatory repeated anaphoric clitics. This is a very Balkanic feature. And standard Bulgarian does not have this, although we see it in some dialects. There's also phonological differences. So obviously these are different languages, but it's a continuum. And both languages show similar structural traits. They have no case marking. They're heavily part uh, of a typological continuum with the other Balkan languages, but they are mutually intelligible to a certain extent. Understood. So it's something that for speakers of these languages, they probably can recognize and identify, ah, you're Macedonian, but in doing so, they have already understood what the other person has said. It's going to be a great degree of mutual comprehension. So to summarize that, it sounds like a classic case within the history of Europe where you have a very gradual change in language across geography, but that change is then hardened, it's solidified by political borders. And I suppose those are the borders between the Ottomans and Bulgarians at first. Then it becomes the very hard borders between Yugoslavia and Bulgaria as a communist republic. And then today, even today, they are still separate countries. Fascinating. But as you have so well put, these are nonetheless languages that they form their own subset of the Slavic languages. And this is something you just learn from the very beginning. You have the Slavic languages, you have Russian, Polish, Czech, Slovak, and then you have Bulgarian and Macedonian. They're doing their own thing. 
I made a meme about this once. It was quite well received, I think. They were sort of like the rebellious daughter of the Slavic family. So I'm just interested, these differences that Bulgarian and Macedonian have, things that you've mentioned, like the fact that their endings are not so complicated, the, the definite article that is attached to the end of the word, these are really not very Slavic. Where do they come from? So basically, what we really have to dive into is the so-called Balkansprachbund. I think sometimes we use the word Balkan speech area. We use this expression to understand what's going on. And Bulgarian and Macedonian are part of this. Sprachbund is a concept from the domain of contact linguistics, and it usually describes the structural and sort of typological unity of languages that are not closely related. So you have to see that there's this set of common innovations that cannot be understood through the fact of them being genetically inherited from a proto-language. So Bulgarian, Macedonian, Romani, Greek, Albanian, Romanian, and Aromanian these are the so-called Balkan Romance languages, the last two, but also southern dialects of Serbian. All of these varieties tend to use the same structures to express certain grammatical relations. And this is probably due to close contact and multilingualism for centuries, and the lack of a pressure from a standardized language, as we had it in France with French or with English in England, so no standardized language that would have had more prestige than others, even though obviously Greek and Church Slavonic had some prestige in church matters. But these communities existed in empires, so there was no nas national state planning the language from somewhere. And it's not very clear how much multilingualism there actually even was, because there are these concurring theories on full multilingualism in the cities. So you have this more or less noble populations or bourgeois populations that speak all of the languages, and a specific technical multilingualism in the countryside. So we see this in shepherds and pastoral culture. We see converging terminology, doublets and loans. You can understand which social and ethnical group had which role in the division of labor. So there is, for instance, in every contact language down there, a Slavic loan for hay, so that is very much something we can understand. And the epicenter of this convergent features, we call these features Balkanisms, is to be placed somewhere south of Lake Ohrit. So there we see that if we take three languages, Romanian, Slavic, and Albanian, and have some dialectological data, we see that the sentences all correspond morph per morph. So every smallest structural part of the sentence is corresponding 100% between these three languages. And the further you move away from there, the less Balkanisms you see. But generally, all of the languages there have either lost or drastically reduced their nominal inflection. And philologically, we can even prove the time and reduction of uh, the case system. So the genitive and the dative fall together almost everywhere at the same time. All the languages lose the infinitive. They evolve to having a postpositive definite article. They use the same construction for expressing the future. And also adjective comparison works the same way everywhere. And something that's very interesting, one of these earliest structural grammatical Balkanisms is actually the fact that position and direction fall together. and They're expressed using the same construction. And Bulgarian is very interesting because the Bulgarian word for where is a witness to this innovation. The Bulgarian word for there is kde, 
through regular sound change, it, ac- it actually should be kde, and we see the form in certain dialects. But it has this vowel in there, so kde instead of kde, because it's contaminated with the word kda, which means where to, into which direction, with cognate forms kuda in Serbian or kuda in Russian. So even the word for kde is a symbiosis between position and direction in Bulgarian. Right. So it's all of these things that are happening at the structural level. You have borrowings, you have loan words. You mentioned, for example, the specific word for hey, which has a Slavic origin. Those are getting shared around. But you also have the way that these languages are put together. Like I said, I don't know these languages very well, but even in my limited experience, you spot these Balkanisms quite quickly. So in modern Greek, for example, you mentioned that the way that you form the future is with uh, a that's just a very short little particle it's not an ending it's like a standalone word and in bulgarian it's a shte and these words as words have nothing to do with one another but by being part of this balkan linguistic area these two words that originally mean to want or i want come to be used for the future so it's as you say this massive convergence Absolutely fascinating. And I I do wonder, actually, do people use this to help them with language learning? Is there some textbook out there like learn languages through the Balkan Sprachbund? Because it's it's quite useful. We should write one. I think this is fantastic. But, you know, as it is down there, unfortunately, people nowadays usually use English when communicating with one another. But it would be fantastic for Bulgarians to learn Romanian and vice versa and sort of understand what our languages have in common. Yeah, because they really do. They have so much in common. As you say, very different origins. We have Romanian, Albanian, different language families, but they have this fantastic convergence. Just to be clear, is it generally agreed then, you you mentioned empire, is it generally agreed that this linguistic area in southeastern Europe is a product of the Ottomans, of the Turks? Is that correct? No, it's actually not that simple because we see the earliest establishment of Balkanisms already during the Byzantine Empire. So we understand during the Byzantine Empire already that certain innovations are forming there, for example, in Church Slavonic texts, that are not forming elsewhere, for instance, in Russian Church Slavonic texts. And we see sometimes that there's similar texts being written in the South Slavic, Bulgarian area, and in the East Slavic, Russian area, And sort of the Bulgarian monastic brothers already merge position and direction, while the Russians still have a differentiation to today for these two things. Okay, so we can't find the origins and we can't find the causes within the Ottomans. They're they're already happening. But I imagine that the Ottoman Empire, this very, very large land empire, does not cause but facilitates this. It allows for this Sprachbund to continue. Yes, what's very important is that you don't have nation states or smaller states that have administrative divisions where you cannot pass a certain boundary, so sort of proto-borders or something, because most probably for the emergence of this Sprachbund, it's important to understand that the key thing is migration of small groups, so sort of small communities that share certain ethnic or linguistic features migrate and get in contact with other groups. And so we see that this only can happen in a situation where 
you don't have ethnic unity or a nation state that wants to have a single language or a single culture introduced on its territory. After that masterful introduction to the history, the geography, the universe of the Bulgarian and Macedonian language, it's now time to turn away from talking about the language in general and turn to somebody who has demonstrated a fantastic connection to these languages, which is, of course, yourself, Leonid. Tell me, what's your relationship to Bulgarian? How did you come to know it? And and what role does it play in your life today? My first contact with the Bulgarian language was seven years ago in 2017, and I was visiting a friend back then, and she just started studying in Pleven, which is a city in northern Bulgaria. And I remember walking through Sofia on a very cold February day, and I was sort of fascinated by the linguistic landscape that I saw around me in Sofia. Because one of my mother tongues is Russian, and if you read Bulgarian texts in Russian, you can sort of understand what's going on. But something's off, you know? There is no nominal declension. There is this particle they attach at the end of some nouns, which must be an article. That's something I figured by then. And there is this very strange verbal system. So you see all these verbs and cannot even... I mean, you see it's a verb, but you but you don't know anything else about it. And I think what's an anecdote that many people who speak Russian always repeat about Bulgarian is that there is this thing we know in Russian by the name of Tvordy Znak, which translates to heart sign. And this is a consonantal sound or even silent in, in Russian. But in Bulgaria, I figured that this must be some kind of vowel, you know, because it stands in a position where usually vowels are in Bulgarian. And yeah, it actually is a vowel. It has this uh sound and it historically was a vowel as well. And then I bought three books on the flea market. First was an English grammar of the Bulgarian language, a book of pioneer songs from socialist times, which were mostly translations of songs I already knew in Russian, and also a Bulgarian-German dictionary. And then, you know, as it is, you fall down the rabbit hole. And what was it then about Bulgarian that made you keep coming back? I mean, it, it, this is something that you've continued to study. It, it wasn't just a holiday romance. What is it like to, to study Bulgarian? And I, those differences that you found with your native Russian, I mean, is it very difficult to understand Bulgarian? Do you have lots of differences? How would you describe it for people who know neither of these languages? Speaking Bulgarian has the feeling of speaking a Western European language because you don't have this kind of nominal inflection. But for me, it was particularly interesting when I came to the Institute of Slavonic Studies in Vienna at the university and very much knew that I wanted to study Slavistics. I wanted to, to become a Slavicist because I was interested in Slavic languages and linguistics and so on. And then I fell in love with Balkan linguistics, specifically with a more marginal topic, such as how can we understand the fact that all Balkan languages are structurally so similar and so on. And then and starting to study Bulgarian on an academic level, you then start to understand that you have certain biases. And one of the biases was that many of sort of the words that made me understand Bulgarian when I was in Bulgaria for the first time were actually not Russian loanwords in Bulgarian, as I thought at that moment, but they're actually the other way around. They're actually Bulgarian or Old Church Slavonic and loanwords in Russian. And Bulgarian is a very cool Slavic language to study and to learn, because first of all, 
it works structurally in a different fashion than all the other highly fusional Slavic languages. It opens your mind and you have to think differently about grammar and certain structures. And you cannot sort of look through the normal Slavic lens, which is very much non-Balkan Slavic. I'm just curious then, because I'm aware that people listening might be interested in the process of learning Bulgarian. You've mentioned it is this analytical language. So like English, it expresses grammatical information by individual words rather than the endings of words. It's like English in that respect. So would you, and you can disagree with me on this, would you recommend to English speakers, if they want to get started with Slavic, go Bulgarian first? I would absolutely recommend for everybody to go Bulgarian first, but probably not for the reasons you think that I would recommend um, doing so. So basically the thing with Bulgarian being so different compared to all the other Slavic languages is obviously the lack of nominal inflection. So Bulgarian has lost all of its cases. There is basically two cases left. The one case that's left is a nominative, which is used as a general case to express everything. And the other case that's left, at least morphologically, is the vocative case. That's very strange, but it's like that. We also see rests of accusatives in dialectal forms, but only on a very sort of marginal level. But what's interesting, if once you start learning Bulgarian, is that you see fossilized forms of nominal inflection across the language, which is something very cool because it's a way of digging up former features of Bulgarian in the modern language. It's kind of archaeology. And these are usually adverbs today, such as gore, up, dolo, down, or noshtem, at night, where you really can see that nosht is the word for night, and m is some kind of former case ending. And often you can even make out which case this was if you speak another Slavic language. But no case inflection means, obviously, you use analytical means of marking syntactic roles, so prepositions, particles, and so on. But if you ever learned a Slavic language and struggled with the inflectional system because you thought, oh, no, it's so difficult to learn the language that has so many cases and I have to learn this by heart. It's like Latin or Greek or I don't know. And then think, oh, yeah, let's learn Bulgarian because it will be so much easier. I unfortunately have to disappoint you because the reduction of nominal inflection is sort of compensated with the innovation of verbal inflection. So <laughs> verbs work in a very, very difficult kind of way in Bulgarian because they come in a spectral pair. So the internal temporal property of an action is sort of coded into the verb. But not only has it this aspectual system, as every Slavic language has actually more or less, it also has so many tenses and they all are formed either by inflecting the verb, so with endings or periphrastically, analytically using other verbs. So it's a very difficult verbal system and it has categories that sort of our Western European but also Slavic verbal systems lack. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily easier to learn Bulgarian than, I don't know, Russian. You're invoking a strange feeling in me, which is you're making me appreciate Czech verbs. That's never happened before. But then again, I understand that Czech verbs are, on the whole, a lot simpler in the way they're put together. Czech being another Slavic language, I should say. They are a lot simpler than Bulgarian ones. Bulgarian preserves things that died out in Czech centuries ago. So yeah, interesting feeling that you've made me feel there. 
But I think what's very important to understand here that it's not only about preserving in Bulgarian. The verbal system is very much innovative. So we see categories in Bulgarian that were not present in old Bulgarian. So in these more or less thousand years between the beginning of old Bulgarian and now the standardization of modern Bulgarian, the verbal system actually becomes richer and more difficult. And this is also something when people ask me, oh yeah, languages change. Do they necessarily become easier over time? And I have to disappoint you. Sometimes they become easier in certain domains of the grammar, but in sort of other domains of the grammar, they tend to acquire new features. Well, this is a good warning for the language learners out there. Bulgarian may lure you in with its lovely nouns. It may be very reminiscent of English, if that's where you're coming from, but the verbs will catch you out. Well, I enjoyed that enormously. I think there was some real practical benefit to what we were talking about with Bulgarian there. So that was super. Now, let's turn back to the language itself. And one of the things, at least, that attracted you to the study of Bulgarian. Uh, Tell us, what is something that you just love about this language? Something that just makes you go, ha, that's cool. There's many small things that I love about studying Bulgarian and working with it um, academically. Obviously, if you ask Bulgarian speakers, which is something I very much did before recording this podcast, what do you actually love about your own language? And they always say, oh, it's so cute. We attach this diminutive endings to everything and make things smaller and love making things smaller and also making loan words smaller. So people love to say kafense for a small coffee or something like that. This is something very cute. But besides these kind of smaller thing, something that I found very fascinating when learning Bulgarian is the fact that sometimes you have to question your biases when producing certain verbal forms in Bulgarian, because Bulgarian has this innovative category called evidentiality. And evidentiality is something that most central European languages or the languages I come from lack in this kind of way. Bulgarian has it. Evidentiality means the attitude of a speaker towards the truth So the question where he or she or they got the information from they're producing at the moment. And in Bulgarian, you can code this information into the verbal form. So you produce a verbal form and at the same time, in the ending or in the mood you're using the verb, the truthfulness of a statement is put inside. So in Bulgarian, there is this fully grammaticalized re-narrative mood. So you can state whether you have received an information through another source and sort of were not present when it happened. And then there is also a dubitative mood. And this is, I think, one of the examples you always get when asking a Bulgarian speaker, oh, I heard there is this dubitative mood in your language. Is this actually a thing? And then they say, yeah, yeah, it's a thing. You can say something like, and this is a statement that a guy who is unsure whether he got wasted yesterday because he drank too much alcohol would say. And obviously, is very periphrastic and probably even hardly used, but it exists and it is grammatical. And so this is something very unique among the Slavic languages and also a specific Balkan Slavic innovation. So Turkic, for example, has this category of evidentiality coded into the verb. And maybe we have it from Turkic in Bulgarian. Who knows? So 
things like, is this a rumour? Things like, did you hear the second hand? Things like, do you trust the person that you heard this thing from? These are built into the verbs of Bulgarian. I think I heard of something similar in Albanian. Now, I don't know if that's correct or not. If it is, is this another Balkanism? There have been some works on evidentiality uh, as a Balkan aerial feature, and I think there's very much truth to that. It's also something you start seeing when working with Balkan languages, that nominal inflection is reduced everywhere, and the verbal system is innovated everywhere as well. So certainly we have to deal with some kind of Balkanism here. Now, as per the format of this whole show, we come now to the third and final personal question that I'm going to pose to you. And seeing as it's the last question, I want you to tell us what is something, as your audience, that we should know about Bulgarian? I think one of my favorite features of Bulgarian is the productivity of Turkic loans in Bulgarian. So Turkish is this language that arrives with the Ottomans to the Balkans, and that has coexisted with the Slavic, Greek, Albanian, and so on languages for a very long time. So it's very much a factor, a linguistic factor in this area. And we see lots of Turkic loans towards the north as well. So Bosnian, Croatian, Montenegro, and Serbian have these words, but they're not nearly as productive compared to East-South Slavic. And in Bulgarian specifically, we see Turkish loan words, so lexical loans, that are connected to the Ottoman way of life. This is something we would expect. So these are words like kilimche, prayer rug, sharbat, it's a kind of sweet, esnaf, guilt. But also everyday vocabulary is loaned from Turkic, such as kyoraf, blind, or words like these. And often if you take a closer look, we have to deal with actually secondary loans from Arabic or Persian that were loaned through Turkish as an intermediary language into Bulgarian. And... I think what I find particularly interesting with these lexical loans that there is also certain suffixes that were loaned into Bulgarian, and these suffixes are very productive. I'm thinking about the suffix luk that forms abstract nouns, or g that forms nouns that show that there's people who do certain things professionally. For instance, there is this word chorbajia. Chorba means soup. It's a Turkish word, and chorbajia is the guy who cooks the soup, but this is actually not the guy who cooks the soup, but this is a social role among the Slavs in Ottoman times. It's actually the chief of a village. It's called Chorbajia. And then these suffixes start living a life of their own and get attached to other words as well. So sometimes these are Slavic words, but then sometimes we see also Greek words that get this suffix. For instance, there is a word mandragia. Mandra is a Greek word for yard, and mandragia is the guy who stands in the yard. And this is actually a chief of a pastoral transhuman community. It's the cheesemaker in chief, or the boss of certain herdsmen, or something like that. And I had this very interesting thing some days ago. I opened this social network we once loved. Twitter. It's not called Twitter like that anymore, but there was this Bulgarian guy whom I follow um, who greeted all of his followers um, early in the morning and wrote, Good morning, Twitter G and Twitter G key. And I think Twitter G key is a fantastic example of how productive this really is because you have this English brand name Twitter 
the Turkic suffix G and then the plural form of the Slavic feminative suffix ka. So it's good morning, Twitter users and Twitter G key, female Twitter users. This is fantastic. And I remember working with some dialectological data where there was like lots of Bulgarian sayings. And there is one saying, so take it easy. Let's do this slowly. And uh, last year I walked through Istanbul and saw this huge sign that said Yavash, which means just slow down. And I thought, oh, that's something I know. But sort of I never learned Turkish, you know, I knew it from a Bulgarian saying. And this is fascinating because we often see the same loans from Turkic that are productive and sub-Slavic in other contexts. So, for instance, at the other end of the Turkic contact area, so, I don't know, in Pashtu or the Volga Kama area, and it's always the same things, it's always the same suffixes, it's always sort of the same words from kinship terminology that get loaned, and it's often also that we see the same Persian or Arabic words loaned through Turkic somewhere completely else in this world. It's just fascinating. It absolutely is. I really, really enjoyed that. So many ingredients have gone into the, the soup, the chorba of modern day Bulgarian. And I think it's wonderful how in your work you are all about teasing apart the real human connections that produce Bulgarian as we know it today. And it's interesting as well that you talk about loan words, because again, very much as an outsider, you didn't mention the one language which to me, seems to have left a big influence on modern-day Bulgarian, which is French. I mean, you know, in Bulgarian, you can say merci to mean thanks. But maybe, in your eyes, French is not worth uh, discussing as much as Turkish is because the influence has been a lot lighter and a lot more time-specific. What do you think of the, of the French connection? French is very interesting for the history of the Bulgarian language because all of these French loanwords get sort of planned into the Bulgarian language in the 19th century. And if we look at texts, we usually see that, that these words fit into the spots where actually Turkisms would go. So there's French words that are meant to be part of the Bulgarian language because they substitute Turkish words that are not en vogue anymore because the Ottoman Empire is over and there is this nation state now. But these Turkish words didn't go anywhere. So we still have them in modern-day conversational vernacular Bulgarian. And also they reappeared in the literary language after the end of communism. So during communism, there was this time when authors and journalists were pressed to use as many Slavic words or substitute with French or Russian loans and so on. But with the end of this pressure, we can show this with corpus data, the Turkish loanwords explode again. So this is something that has left a big mark. And the fact that we also see French loanwords shows that there's different stages of influence. So, so interesting. Leonid, this has been such a great introduction, such a tour de force of the different components of Bulgarian. So truly, on behalf of the listeners and from me too, thank you so much for this. I have to say, if people want to keep hearing from you, and they should, please tell us, uh, uh, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter, where my handle is Uthlan Tenger, which is Mongolian for Red Sky. And there is also a podcast episode I recorded with uh, my colleague and friend Jeremy Bradley on the situation of minority languages in Russia, which is something Jeremy works on very much. That is, of course, Jeremy from the previous episode of this podcast. 
All that remains to say is just thank you very much, Leonid, for doing this. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. You're welcome. Now it's that time for a final fun fact from me. And I would like to talk about a common English word that we get from Bulgaria. In fact, we get it from the term Bulgar itself. However, this is a rude word. So, to keep this podcast rated family-friendly, you'll have to imagine it for yourself. Suffice to say, a medieval association between Bulgaria and a group of heretics, and beliefs about the sexual practices of those heretics, have meant that the term Bulgar has, via French, given English a six-letter swear word that likewise starts with B and ends with R. Seriously. That's everything for this second episode of Series 2. Please do rate, review and recommend the show to share the linguistic love far and wide. My sincere thanks must go to my guest today, Leonid, of course, and to you, dear listener, for listening. Keep well and keep loving life.